What is up, everyone? I am Patrick Jones, and I am the host of Patrick Jones Baseball Podcast. On today's episode, we have Bryce Neal. Bryce is currently a softball coach at the University of Louisville. He is their hitting coach. He previously was at Bucknell University, and before that, he was at Arizona State. Bryce has a a background, actually, in baseball, played Division II college baseball, was in the private sector working with a lot of baseball players for a few years and, you know, was able to get an opportunity to go into the softball world and and has loved it and has thrived in it. Uh, He's a really good coach. His wife actually played professional softball. So he comes from a softball family. And and in this episode, we talk a little bit about his own background and and how he's evolved as a coach. And and he opens up and and shares some, some of his own experiences um, some of the mistakes he made, some of the, the changes that he's made as a coach um, throughout the years. And then we get into how they do things at the University of Louisville, how they go about uh, practice, how they go about recruiting and what they're looking for. And it's really good uh, information. Um, so if, if you're a baseball coach, you're going to get value out of this. If you're a softball coach or a parent or a player, all of the above, uh, you're, you're going to take something away from this episode because uh, uh, Bryce Bryce does a great job of covering a lot of topics and 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 you know giving some really good insight. Uh, if you head to PatrickJonesBaseball.com/softball, you can sign up, put your name and email in, and I have some some softball content that is going to be on the way. It's it's been in the works for a while now, so. If you head to PatrickJonesBaseball.com slash softball, put your name and email in, and you will be sent uh, information on some of the content that we have coming out very shortly. Ladies and gentlemen, here is now my episode with Bryce Neal. We now welcome on Bryce Neal. Bryce, appreciate you coming on the podcast today, man. Yeah, Patrick, thanks for having me. So I know you you have a, a background in baseball. I know you played college baseball. You've, you've coached in baseball, travel baseball, just a little bit of, of everything in, in the baseball world and now in the softball world too. Um, and I always like asking coaches who go from baseball to softball, why, why did you decide to go into the, the softball game? Yeah, so quick, kind of just my quick story. So played Division II baseball, um, was was an average player at best, couldn't really hit, could pick it a little bit, um, got done, was part of a, a startup business uh, in the tech space, uh, did that for four years. Um, and the time my wife had just retired from playing professionally, what used to be the NPF, National Pro Fast Pitch League. And so I was kind of in a place where it was like, man, what am I going to do next, right? And my sister had just got done um, in the Stillwater Regional that year. She played at the University of Tulsa. So my wife's like, look, you love to coach. And she was like, why don't you just try to figure out a way to make this your full-time gig? And so at the time I was doing baseball and um, I had made a connection through blast motion uh, with Jeff Harder, who's the hitting coach or was the hitting coach at Arizona State with the softball program there. And he and I had started connecting about just what they were doing with blast. And I was helping them through some things. And um, he said, man, why don't you come out and interview with coach Ford? And we would love to have you as a volunteer, as long as what you believe in kind of aligns with what we're trying to do. So I uh, went out there on a Thursday, interviewed with coach Ford and then packed the truck up and didn't have a place to live, but I drove out on Sunday. 
So that was kind of the start for me. And fortunately enough, um, Rachel Fulvin actually connected me with the guy that, that worked for the Cubs that had a room for me. So fortunately, I found on the fifth day, my hotel uh, last day, I had to check out. But on the fifth day, I found a place to stay. And so that's kind of where I got my start. What advice did your wife have for you when you decided to go into softball? Because I'm sure she 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 taught you some stuff that you may not have known coming from the baseball world. Yeah, really, man, just just kind of making it known that like, look, like if you're going to get into softball, you have to understand that maybe the reason for a female playing might be a little bit different than the reason a male might be playing. Right. No professional league uh, or at the time. I mean, there's there's very little pay in it. And so under just understand that the way that they approach things might be a little bit different and just have patience with it. Um, It's funny you say that, Patrick, because still to this day, she gives me advice. So she comes her and her and our 10 month old son came to all of our games in the spring, our home games. And I would get home and I'll have a list of things on the dinner table while I'm eating dinner of hey, why didn't your girl swing in this 2-1 count? Or what was the approach here? And why didn't you guys steal? And it's just so, I feel like, and, and that's another thing that attracted me to ball. I come from a softball family. So just being able to maintain the relationship with both my sister and my father who really enjoy, enjoy softball, um, really, I mean, it's great for us as a family. So how has it changed? Like, so you were a hitting coach. I know you've worked with players on the baseball side. Has anything particularly changed in your approach to working with hitters now on the softball side? Yeah. So funny story about that. When I got to ASU, I think at the time I'd been in the private sector, right? So I'd worked in in the cage space and I had some really good hitters come in and, you know, you have so much time in that space and you can kind of work through some things. Try this, try, try this. Let's see where we go. Um, and then I got to ASU and I think I was really eager, right? I was eager to say, Hey, look, this is my first gig. I want to prove my worth. Um, I want to make it known that like, Hey, this guy knows what he's doing. And so when I got there I started looking at hitters with Jeff and I got, I actually got there, Patrick, in, in like late January, early February. So we were about to play. And so I'm looking at hitters and, and it was like obvious to me that there were things that aesthetically, right? Aesthetically, mechanically, kinematically, whatever. There were things that I'm like, Hey, this may not play. And I would bring it to Jeff's attention. And he was like, look, man, this girl's had a lot of success at the travel level. She's had a lot of success during our fall season. Let's just let this play out. You and I will work in the background to make sure that we have Jeff's a big KVS guy. So we'll take the KVS data. We'll take all of the hit track stuff we have and video and let's wait on her to come to us and let's be really prepared. And so that for me really changed. And in that moment, it changed the way that I thought about everything, the way that I viewed how we're practicing, the way that I viewed my role as moving forward as a hitting coach. Um, So in that, again, I'm really fortunate for Jeff and everything that he was able to provide for me, but uh, really just that experience. And and to this day, like everything that I'm doing um, is, is far different than everything that maybe I did three years ago or even last year, two years ago. So, um, yeah, a lot of difference. So, yeah, it is interesting. I, I, I kind of have a similar experience just on the baseball side of, of being in the private sector and then going and working in a, in a team environment too. And just understanding that you may see flaws in players, but you know, when it's during the season, I mean, Sometimes you just you, you kind of got to do what you got to do to get ready to play that day. You know what I mean? And 
Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard, man. I mean, being a hitting coach, I would, I always say like being a hitter is the hardest thing to do. And I think the second hardest thing to do in all sports is be a hitting coach. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And you know, there, there's a, there's another time there that really opened my eyes. So we were in Palm Springs playing in the Mary Nutter and we were playing Florida. And I don't remember who was pitching for Florida, maybe Riley Trilacek or one of their really good arms. And I was sitting in the dugout and, and she was a left-handed arm and she was able to throw three speeds in the same tunnel and they all went different ways. And I, I remember sitting there thinking like, man, I've been doing this all wrong, right? Like I've been teaching direction, right? Mechanically, I've been teaching direction and I've been teaching path and all these things that may assist our hitters in being successful against her, but none of that's going to matter right now. Like sure. Some of those things will help her, but all of the block training that I've been doing, all of the, um, you know, I, I, I did some cool stuff environmentally, but it was at slow speeds. It wasn't challenging. And then we go into that and I'm like, man, like nothing that I've been doing prepared this girl for what she's about to go see. So, um, you know, again, like even what we're doing here, um, there's not a, I was telling Aaron Longnecker, who was our volunteer here, um, you know, the, the swing and miss rate in college softball in 2020 was right around 45% at the power five level. There was a ton of swing and miss and it's getting, it's getting more and more every year. So, um, how does what we're doing in practice reflect that? And I found that looking back on other practice plans and things, I'm like, man, we never swing and miss in practice. Mm. So it's like, how are you able to create that environment in the practice setting in order to create the confidence that you're going to need to go perform that night? And so, um, but yeah, I'll never forget that in Palm Springs that year thinking like, man, like I've got to change everything that I'm doing. So in that moment, when you're when you're you're facing a, that pitcher who has three pitches coming out of the same tunnel, what I mean, what are you telling the hitters as they're going up on on the index circle? Like good luck. I mean, well, like- well, well, then it was good luck, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then it was, and, and and you know, again, it was probably something, Patrick, that was more of like an internal cue, like like hey, you know, maintain your direction, or hey, you know, like I don't know, like try to, try to decide, I don't know, just like really internal stuff. And then now I think how that, again, like how I've evolved in that is like, how are we preparing in the fall to be able to execute game plans in the spring? And we'll spend a large block of our fall is we'll look at pitchers in our conference, pitchers that I may think like, Hey, this is going to be a breaking point in our season, or, Hey, we're going to need to perform well on these weekends to be able to compete in our league. And we'll look at that in the fall and then we'll start to build game plans for it. So if I saw that same picture today, she's throwing three speeds, I would try to pair up two of the speeds, right? Mm. So we're going to try and then, and then attach maybe an external approach. So rather than being internal with how we're thinking, get our players to think more externally. So it's, it's a big difference, man. And I heard, I heard something the other day that you'll like, it was like every other team sport, there's so much strategy play by play that's provided to the player by the coach. And in our sport, you have the hitter that's in the box having to make adjustments pitch by pitch with the coach providing no strategic feedback. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So in the cage setting, it's like, how are we creating that environment to have those conversations? Because once they get in there, man, and they're in like the heat of the moment, it's up to them. 
And so I thought that was really cool when I heard that the other day. I'm like, okay, like that makes a ton of sense because you think about a football defensive coordinator, like the player is executing technique. But imagine if the player had to think about, hey, should we run a cover two or should we run a robber and then have to execute the technique, right? That's awesome. I like that. I like yeah. that. I, I mean, so knowing that when you're in the cage, I mean, because I know think about it for myself being in the cage, working with hitters, like I, I will do that, right? They'll take a swing and, or a couple swings and I might say something. What? How Are you changing how you go about coaching in practice based upon what you just said? Like, are you doing, would you say you're doing less talking now than you were doing before? Yeah, I, I would say so. And hopefully what we're doing here at Louisville, hopefully our players would tell you that everything that we do is co-designed by them. And it may not, like if you're a freshman or a sophomore, you may not have as much input as somebody that's went through a complete ACC season and knows maybe the, the demands that they're going to go through through 56 games. But I would say that the majority of our practice setup or structure, had, our players had a lot of input on that. And so based on that, um, Aaron and I talked about this a lot last year. Like if we're not, if, if practice isn't posing or is it, it's not creating enough conversation amongst our players and then through us, then we're probably not setting up practice correctly. So, and that's something that our players know here too. It's like at the beginning of the year, when we present to them, like one of the first slides is like getting them to understand how much you're going to actually fail and getting them to understand that like what our philosophy is here from just an offensive standpoint is like, Hey, we're going to cultivate an environment that's going to challenge you and you're going to fail. And then it's up to us to back that up with how we're approaching every day. Cause I think that's where a lot of it gets lost is like every coach wants to put in this, hey, failure is acceptable here. We want you to fail. But then there becomes like there becomes like a, a breaking point there where as a coach, you're like, okay, this is really going to challenge me to like, do I need to give that immediate feedback? Because I really want to. Or do I do I do I observe and watch this player go through their process and let them fail and continue to fail? They may get frustrated and then see how they react to that and then inject yourself when you need to. So, um, yeah, I would say we take that into account here, our entire staff every day. And that doesn't just, that's not just for hitting, that's for everything that we're doing. That's like the, just the, the art of coaching, right? Is, is timing, timing and tone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I would agree. I was reading up on your blog uh, that you've written a lot of really good articles. Actually, I'll put the link up in the show notes. And one of the ones that I I, I liked and I, I wanted to just follow up and have a question for you on is you mentioned, uh, let me get the exact wording, you're talking about timing and that you don't believe in the word timing. Can you yeah. uh, elaborate on that? Yeah. So we when you start talking about the swing here, right, and again, we, we kind of referring back to the question you asked me earlier about how I've evolved, right? So our, our offensive philosophy here, and I'll circle back to your question, but our offensive philosophy here is based on um, basically data that's been provided to division one coaches on run expectancy. So what we tell our kids is we want to get to second base as many times as possible throughout the course of a game. And within that, we want to make the pitcher make as many pressure pitches as you can, because when you go into Clemson, South Carolina, and you got Valerie Cagle, who's a team USA pitcher, brother, you ain't getting many hits that night, you know? And so if we can, if our slappers can get the first steal a base and then one of our kids that we expect to drive in runs can come up and drive in a run, 
right? That's how we're going to score. So based on that, when, when our kids get here, we really break. So that's more offensive, right? When, when our kids get here, our four, I guess you could call them foundational principles for the hitting or the swing mechanical, they're all centered around adjustability. So there's a lot of variation and I, I don't really believe that there's a ton of absolutes in hitting their style. There's so many different factors, movement profiles and things that contribute to being a great hitter. But at our level, you have to be adjustable, whether it's different speeds, different game plans, different zones. And so our four are, um, we call it time. That's, that's what we call it. And when you said timing, uh, obviously timing plays a really crucial role in hitting, but I don't believe in game that you're going to have a huge amount of control over where that you make contact with the ball, just based on how in softball, like we'll have girls that throw a curveball one pitch at 64 and then they'll take three miles an hour off on the next pitch and it'll be a 61 mile an hour curveball. And so if you're it, look, Patrick, if you have the answers on how to teach a hitter, how to make that adjustment and know that the, the pitcher is about to take off three miles an hour, by all means, please expose me to that. But I'll text you. I'll text it to you. I got the secret. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> please do. But we start with time and time to us is basically like everything that the pitcher is doing prior to the release of the ball. And we, one of the, like, we expect all of our hitters to know how their move, so their load, their gather, whatever you want to call it, how that syncs up with the pitcher's delivery and how you need, where you need to be at in your move to make sure that you're able to make adjustments as the ball is approaching you mid-flight. So you're able to adjust your posture, you're able to set your path, and then you're able to create a wide hitting window. Um, and so time, the word time is used far more in our cages. How are you creating time? What does your time look like? Um, rather than timing. I also think that there's a huge, I'll just say this, I'll go out on the weekends and we'll recruit. Right. And you've seen this so much, but you'll have a girl that, or a guy that hooks a ball 300 foot foul into the parking lot. Right. And Johnny's mom sitting over there in the stands and she says, Hey, Johnny, you just missed it. You know, and he comes back to the dugout and he says, man, coach, I was just early. Well, through my experience with great hitters, they never really feel early because their path allows them room for air on both sides of the ideal contact point. Right. And so we talk a lot about that. But again, time, we're going to spend far more time mm. on how to create checkpoints with pitchers delivery at different parts of the arm swing and when to start your move and how different deliveries could affect that and things of that nature. Would so, you also work with hitters on their stance or setup to help with that time? Absolutely. So how mechanically speaking, your ability to be able to control your forward move or your stride is critical to be able to control what we call time. So if you can't establish your glute without uh, maybe a backward sway or um, without loading the quad, you're going to have a really tough time having a consistent move forward. And that's where we found that players feel off time more than anything is that they can't repeat their forward move. And within that, we talk with our, with our upper level, like our older hitters about creating variations of their move. So it's like, Hey, if you have a girl, um, like it's a, it's a men's fast pitch uh, approach, but a lot of girls now they're not really giving you an arm swing. They're going more from the hip 
it, I, I would, it's the equivalent Patrick of like a slide step in baseball. Okay. So okay. traditional softball pitching, you would see like a big arm swing and you would see a lot of movements prior to her getting down the hill or, you know, down through the circle and at the hitter. So as a hitter, if you're looking at that, you're like, okay, I'm going to start up here at 12 o'clock. Right. Well, if they don't provide you that, that can become really tough. If you have a two piece move, like a leg lift or a tap. So we spend a lot of time saying, okay, Hannah, you have a leg lift. So what happens if we go to Virginia Tech and their number one doesn't give you enough time to um, accomplish your leg kick? Or So I would say that's where we spend most of our time. That makes sense, too, because the pitcher's a lot closer than in yeah. baseball, right? What is it, 42 feet? 43 feet. 43, 43 by the feet. time they release, it's more like 38 feet. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, definitely a lot less time to speaking of time, but a lot less. I mean, you just, you, you don't have a, any uh, room for air really, you know, and in, in base, no. baseball world, like you can get away at times with, you know, some inefficiencies and, and get lucky, but it seems like in softball with how close they are and how hard they throw. Whew, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's hard. Which even right. Increase like it, it, increases or it makes it even more important to have adjustability right and like to be efficient and to be in sequence and and things of that nature like i told you the four right for us it's it's time it's forward move so those two kind of go together it's posture sequence and path like and those are all movement based so like those aren't necessarily like things that we're having to cue in the cage setting like we're hoping that we're setting up the environment to start producing some of those movements um, but those are all things that I feel like through like what we call movement prep, which is before or after our cage work or our field work, like over the course of time, we hope that we're improving those just from an adjustability standpoint, because like you said, you have no time. Yeah. And so, uh, especially as you get above 63, 64 miles an hour, it's, it's really, it happens really fast. So when, when you're out recruiting, watching hitters, Yep. What What are you looking for from maybe just to start out, maybe just from like a movement standpoint? Because I know you I mean you have a, a really good background and, and really progressive, uh, a little bit off topic here. But I, I just I've talked to some uh, a lot of actually not a lot, a decent amount of softball coaches. And it seems that the softball overall is behind baseball when it comes to progress being progressive and and correct me if i'm wrong but this is just the people that i've sure. talked to um so you know i i followed people like you and i've you know followed like dan gratz who's down at texas and carlton mm-hmm. salters and and uh it seems like that's not the case with a lot of places so when you're out recruiting and watching hitters knowing what you know um maybe it might be different for other people but being progressive how you are is is there anything specific you're looking for yeah so a couple things the first thing would be um consist can you can like this is a little bit strength and conditioning related too, just strength related but do you have the ability to consistently get off your move that that's something that we talked about a second ago that's really important to me it's not like the end-all be-all because we can develop that through our strength and conditioning program here um but that would be the first thing. And with that, a lot of times, like I tell people is watch the back knee, right? Like how they're gathering or how they're moving. The back knee is a really good indicator of it because if it's moving towards the plate, you know that they're probably a quad loader and they're not going to have as much control. 
if they're, if the knee's stable and they're loading the hip joint, then you know that, okay, this person probably has a pretty good idea of how to move. Like they've been taught well, which again, I'm confident in our ability here to be able to teach those things. I just don't, it, 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 it the learning curve becomes steeper. Right. And so, um, and then the, the two critical things for me are bat speed and like, just kind of like bat to ball skills and then coachability. Those are the three that I always tell coaches like, Hey, what are you looking for in hitters today? Those are the three. And the reason that is, is like, we, we harped on bat speed in the fall here last fall, because when I got here, we ran through an entire assessment, Aaron, our coaching staff here, we said, look, we, we have to figure out what we have and how we're going to score runs. All right. And so when I, the, the glaring thing to me here is, or was, bat speed and the lack of it. And so we spent a ton of time in the fall time that we could have spent on other things working through bat speed gains. And so I, we can build it, but I would prefer not to, I would prefer to be able to move on to uh, other things. So if we can recruit it even better and then bat to ball skills, can you square up velo consistently? Because I can't teach you that. I can <laughs> I was teach just going to my follow-up question. Yeah, I can't teach you that. Now, we can hit wiffle balls with small bats, and we may be able to increase it slightly. But can you square up velo? And I'm not talking like you, like you said, right, when the pitching 55 to 58, you can get away with a ton of inefficiencies. You can get away with a slow pull. But when the pitching increases and you're having to hit speeds and you're not necessarily able to sit pitches against some pitchers, like you've got to be able – to um, one, make decisions later, which bat speed and time to contact have a huge correlation to be able to do that. Um, and then coachability. The only reason I throw that in there is because if you're not coachable, then the product that I'm watching on the field is probably the product that I'm going to have mm. because you're not going to be able to take what our coaching staff can give you and make yourself a better player. So um, those are the three things that I'm looking for. And then I've found, and every hitting coach is probably different. Like Patrick, you probably have things that when you're out recruiting or you're out watching people play that you're like, I really struggle to correct those flaws. And it's different for you than it is me. And it's different for me than it is for the baseball coach here, just because we all gravitate towards a certain way of coaching or certain things we're more comfortable styles we're you know, we're comfortable teaching. So for me, um, if your hand path gets down below your shoulders, um, I, I don't struggle to teach it. It's just hard. It's hard to correct that. And that, again, I think that's more strength conditioning um, related than anything. So, uh, and then there's other things that I look for too, but really those three core things, if you can do those, then I hope that the environment here um, can make you a great hitter. When you say bat speed, how do you go about like being able to, is that just from your just gut and eyes tell you like they have good bat speed or they don't? Yeah, I think so. I think you can see it. Um, like if, if Bryce comes to watch me play, be like, all right, I'm going to use a lighter bat today. Yeah, no joke, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, um, I mean, the other thing, too, is like camp. So we get girls that we're recruiting, we get them to camp. And, you know, our camps are a little bit different. And I think people are trending this way, but we're collecting a ton of data at camp. And it's not like we have stations for it. It's just organically built into – uh, the camp schedule. So we're collecting bat speed that day during our scrimmages. We're running Rapsodo during our cage work. We're running machines at higher velocities to see how you handle that. And we're observing it. So it's not just like recruiting to me. And when you're out on the trail, 
you're, you're essentially qualifying leads is what you're doing. And then you invite or you try to get them to camp. And I, I think Patrick for us here, and if you don't come to camp, it's pretty indicative that maybe you don't want to play softball at the university of Louisville. Mm. Um, we want you to come to camp. We want you to interact with our staff because we can't enter, like we can't com- like converse with you until September one, right? Yeah. Like that recruiting wise, it's a little bit different than other sports. So if we don't have a previously built relationship with you because you haven't come to camp, then it's really difficult. Not saying it never happens like it has happened, but uh, it can be difficult for us. So uh, well, you, camp- you want players who want to be there, right? And want Correct. to play for Louisville. Correct. And, and, you know, our program's evolving. Like last year, we won a top 10 road game. We won at Arkansas. That was the first top 10 win on the road since 2016. Wow. We went to Clemson and won a game. That was a big thing for us at the time. First top 15 or top 10 road ACC win since 2015 or 16. So our program is trending in the right way. And so there is an element of it where, yeah, you are having to reach out and you're hoping to get in on some of the best players. Right. But you don't it never feels good to beg. Right. And you like you said, you want people that want to come here and want to see campus and want to interact and they want to hear hey, what's the vision for the program? Because those are the people that are going to be invested for their four years in the growth of us. So how do you go about identifying those leads, right? I know you mentioned a tournament earlier, 300 teams potentially. So how do you go about knowing who to go watch? I mean, if you're sure if you just show up and just start watching random games, I mean, you may not see any players that you think are good enough. Yeah, I'm going to say something that maybe most coaches wouldn't agree with, but I use social media a ton. Really? So I'm, I'm not necessarily saying like we're going to recruit a player off social because I've definitely misevaluated or, or, or over analyzed a kid on social. And then they get here and I'm like, wait a minute. Right. Yeah. Um, but I'm qual- always, always qualifying leads through social media, Twitter, um, Instagram, a lot of the Western like West Coast teams use Instagram. They use Facebook. So there's recruiting services that we use. Um, and then I think it's relationship driven. So um, what coaches do we have in our network that we can trust that have developed talent um, that have given players maybe to the previous coaching staff that have turned out to be the right type of kids that fit our culture. Um, so, and then the other thing I'll tell you about evaluation is something that we do here that may be different than other schools is so if you're going to be an offensive player, we call them offensive players, not hitters. If you're going to be an offensive player in our offense, you we categorize you in one of three ways. You're either a burner, you're a baller, or you're a bomber. And that you basically you, the category that you fit in sets the entire framework for it basically creates like a triangle around you. So it touches SNC and nutrition, it touches medical, and it touches our staff. So, and I'll kind of give you an example. A burner is going to be your slapper. Okay. So I don't, softball's kind of trended away from slapping. I don't really care. I want people that can ball and I want people that can help us score runs. But what I do know with the slapping piece is that one, um, scouting has totally evolved. It's totally evolved. We now have access to everything. And then the, the style and the level of athlete that's playing at third base and left field and center field on the left side of the infield that's also evolved. You're getting phenomenal athletes at high levels playing that side. So I told you earlier, like our philosophies, you got to get to second base. So if you're a slapper for us, either you got to be able to slug a little bit, not all of it, or you got to be able to steal 30 bags because I need you to be able to get to second base. So if you're a burner, everything that you do 
I'm going to time home to first. I'm going to time your steel time because that's going to be vitally important to us. Um, so we're when we're evaluating offensive players out on the recruiting trail, I'm trying to envision where you're going to fit into one of those three categories. So if you're slow and you run a slow home to first, you better be able to drive in runs. You because again, like you have to help us score. And that's at the that's the pinnacle of what we're trying to do. Like our everything we do hitting has to reflect that offensive goal. So I hope that answered a little bit of your, of yeah, your no. question of how we're evaluating hitters. What's a what's a good home to first time that like you look down at your stopwatch, you're like, whoa, that's that's a burner right there. The for me, sub 3-0 in game. If you can run sub 3-0. You're, I always say this, you're a bobble away from being safe. So now every play that you or every ball that you put in play isn't routine in my opinion, because you've got to catch it clean, transfer it clean, throw it clean. You have to with a sub three Oh, and I'm talking like in game. Like I don't care about your time at, you know, the division one select camp where, you know, you started in a sprinter stance. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see in game. Can you get home to first in a sub three Oh? Um, and then for us, like a steel time, I actually have this over here. A steel time is sub two five when, and that's like, that is objective data that we pull from synergy based on the best base stealers in the country. We're looking at what times are they running first to second that allowed them to steal 30 plus bases. So if you're going to be a burner in our program, you're either working towards that or you are that. And that's how we're going to utilize you to help us score runs. And then that's how also you're going to achieve your personal goals. What about from the defensive side? Because you just mentioned before, and I've noticed this too, in softball, like you bobble it. I mean, they're probably, they're safe, right? So you, I mean, I'm sure if you're, well, looking at infielders, they have to be, I mean, really good defensively or else there a lot of runs are going to be let in. Yeah. Our, so our, so Patrick, our head coach, Holly, uh, coach Holly does all of our defense. She's really, really progressive. That's another good conversation. I think maybe down the road you could have because she studies under some of, or she studies some of the best defensive minds in all of baseball or softball. Doesn't really matter. Oh, really? The efficiency and the, the level or the level of efficiency that you have to operate under in softball um, it's super high and it's just like, it's just like hitting where any inefficiencies, maybe you don't funnel well to the center of chest. Maybe you take the ball out down instead of up. Um, any of that's going to get exposed as you ascend through levels. And I tell infielders at camp all the time, look, there's things that you get away with now that you'll never get away with at our level. And so if you're not practicing those things daily, like taking ground balls at mass is one thing. But if you're not practicing what we call those micro movements every day, you're going to struggle because those will get exposed really quickly. So, um, yeah, definitely the, the level of the speed of the game increases exponentially at any level of college softball. I know earlier we were talking about like bat speed and you were evaluating that, collecting that data uh, at camps and, yeah. um, you know, really making an emphasis this past fall with with your players. What about exit velocity? Is there a certain, I mean, I've heard if you're in the seventies for softball, like you've, you've got some pretty good power. Um, are there, are there numbers that you're looking for too at the camp from a exit velocity standpoint? If you, if you're above 70, you have a really good chance to be a good hitter at our level. 
that would also mean to me that anybody that's above 70 would probably be a good indicator of a good path because you're not, you're, you're able to transmit bat speed into exit below, right? For lack of a better term in layman's terms, I guess. So if you're over 70, um, then you have a pretty good, um, the window for success is pretty substantial. So, which kind of is another good topic, Patrick, that you made me think of. I think in recruiting right now, and again, this may ruffle some feathers, but just in player development and softball period at the young ages, I think everyone is trying to develop the same type of player. And I tell kids at camp all the time, if you don't, if you can't clip 70, that's fine. That's fine. There's value for you. You just have to understand that because if you're, if you're swinging a slow pole, like if you're a 58 mile an hour bat speed person and you're clipping balls at 63 and you're hitting them at 30 degrees, that's a fly out at our park. Mm-hmm. But yet I go, you know, there's a lot of kids that are being taught like to, to have really high attack angles because that's the long-term goal. So like you have to be able to differentiate between like, if you're in your recruiting cycle right now, like what are my short-term goals and what are my long-term goals? Like if my short-term goal is to get recruited and I go to camp and I'm that person, well, I'm, I, we don't want people that hit 170 foot pop-ups. Like you may get away with that at the travel level because the center fielder doesn't cover much ground, but at our level, those balls are all caught. But that doesn't mean that you can't be great. You just have to find like, how do I maximize my current skill set and understand that I still need to be developing these other tools to help me get to where I want to go long term. So I think that's something that I've seen that's pretty prevalent right now, just in our sport, is that everyone comes to camp or I watch swings on the road and they're all like this way. Right. And believe me, I want I like hitting the ball in the air. Right. It's much easier to, to trot around the bases than than it is to sprint. But there's value in every player and you can help us score runs or you can help whatever school you're going to go to in various ways. You just kind of have to have a really good idea of who you are and be great at who you are rather than trying to always fit or check a box or fit into another mold. So, um, but yeah, no, now now that just hearing you talk about that and, and just hearing your own philosophy, I think someone, I don't know if you, you know, Craig Snyder, he's the head coach of Texas tech. Uh, yeah, I know Craig a little bit. Yep. Yeah, he's someone I, I had him on the podcast. He's someone who I, I, you kind of, you guys are just seem very progressive. I mean, just, I had him on. He was talking about doing force plate studies and things like yep. that, and just hearing you talk about that, but also being able to relate it into you know practical use when it comes to hey, like what what's actually going to help us score runs in the game because that's what yeah. actually matters, um, which I think is is awesome to hear. I think all coaches should should be able to kind of just take bits and pieces of both. Um, when here's a question for you, and I've always wondered this. I, I sometimes ask myself this. I know you have a newborn, but say he like they end up playing, they want to be a hitter. How are you going to go about de- helping helping him develop as a hitter from the time he's a young kid all the way up the yeah. chain? So I think the first thing I would say is probably my you know he Brooks is just learning to walk, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm. If, if you knew my wife, Patrick, she's super competitive and she was, a, you know, an extremely high level player. She probably already has Brooks hitting off a tee right now. So I'm kind of kidding. But, um, man, I, I think that, you know, I'm lucky because I've seen some of the coaches that I've coached with and that I have a lot of respect for raise their kids. And I think that letting him 
um, if he chooses to play baseball, but kind of letting him just be an athlete in general and developing those athletic tools. Um, I tell people this, there's no quicker way to rob a player of their athleticism than overcoaching mechanics, especially at a young age. And it's so true. And you eliminate degrees of free. There's so many like scientific things that say that's the wrong way to approach it. So I think letting him explore on his own and then giving him guidance as, um, as he asks for it. Um, I, I told my wife, I'll never coach him. Like that's something that, um, just being in the coaching industry and seeing some of the things I think letting him be coached under other people is also vitally important. And I have a lot of respect, like the parents that the dads or moms currently that coach their children, I've seen so many of them do a phenomenal job because they're able to separate the two. They're able to separate their relationship with their daughter as a mom and as a coach. And when you can do that, it's, it's extremely beneficial to your child because you get to experience some of those things with them, their success, their failure, and it probably develops your relationship with them, right? Like you, you get exposed to some situations that you have to really like, um, you know, it, it's challenging as a parent. So I, I just think that letting him explore, um, not over coaching him, letting him play as many sports as he wants. And I know that's the cliche answer to it, but um, you know, I think, that's probably the biggest thing is just uh, not over coaching. So, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't coach him if he, let's just say hypothetically he's playing and this. I think this is what happens, right? That you, you sign your kid up or he's playing for a coach and you go and watch that coach coach. And you're like, Oh my gosh, like yeah. doing all the wrong stuff. Like then you would, could you see yourself be like, all right, I can't, I, we can't be doing this anymore. I need to step in. At a certain age, potentially. Right. So, again, I think that you have to if his goal is to play college baseball, then you have to align him or you have to align your family with the right people to help him achieve his goals. So if that situation was preventing him potentially from getting the instruction that he needed to achieve his own personal goals, not my goal for him, but his own personal goals then we may have to look at it to say, okay, like we may need to find a new environment or a new situation to help you develop. But until he expressed that his desire was to play at a higher level, man, let him go, let him go. So, and I also don't think that many, if, if he's a good athlete and he's capable of playing at a higher level, typically they will be successful. Right. Which typically the next piece of that is the coach doesn't say much. Yeah, so sure. um, I think those things often go hand in hand. But I got a, I got one more question for you. I had a couple of these questions come in from from actually this this particular one is actually from a parent uh, softball and they wanted to know how much parent involvement is too much, uh, maybe yeah. just in the recruiting process or in general. I think we'll just let, let's just talk about the recruiting process. Um, is that okay? Like if oh, we yeah, just yeah. Okay. Yeah. so you the portal is so prevalent now, right? Like you're seeing it. And it's exponentially like there's exponentially more players in there every year. And I think a lot of that has to do with parents and players not asking the right questions during the process. And so I always tell parents and encourage them, excuse me, I always tell them, make sure you ask critical questions initially. And if the coach isn't 
if they're not accepting or they're not forthcoming with the answer, or they feel uncomfortable with it. That could probably be a red flag to you that either they don't know, they don't, they don't, they aren't comfortable expressing what's actually going to happen and they can't answer your question correctly. So that would be my advice. And then once they get to college, you're four years away from going out and getting a job and having to be a subordinate unless you own your own business, but you're going to have to be able to take instruction and take feedback from a superior. So try to eliminate yourself from that process and not step in unless it's affecting your daughter's mental health, unless it's affecting their ability to be uh, effective in the classroom, or maybe it's just a a hostile situation um, in which then as a parent, you can step in. But I still like, there's so many resources, Patrick, for like that we have here at Louisville for players that are struggling with mental health or things of that nature, I would still encourage the player to learn to seek out that help and go through their coaching staff um, or go through the university resources first before involving their parent. Now, not maybe notifying them of the situation, absolutely, because they're still a parent. But learning to go through those things on your own, gosh, man, like that has to pay huge dividends for you just as a human being. Um, you know, in the years to come, when you go out and you start working and you're out on your own. Well, so, yeah, cause you're, you're preparing them for the, you know, the real world, right? I mean, essentially after college. So I think that's a great piece of advice. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just, I, I think that that's like, a, there's a stigma surrounding that, like as a parent and when I go travel too, I was like, Hey, I don't want to hear from parents. Right. But now that I'm a parent, I'm like, well, okay. Like if the situation was hostile or, you know, there was something that was preventing Brooks from being able to do or do the things he wants. Yeah. I should be involved in that. And at some point he has to be able to think for himself. Sure. But he's still, even with our kids, they're still developing young people. Like their brains are still developing. They're learning how to have critical conversations. Like that's what college does. Hopefully, right. You're learning how to have those conversations and things like that. So to say that they're ready for those and parents should be, um, not involved. I don't think that's right, but that's just my opinion. So love it, Bryce. Appreciate it, man. Uh, you've been you've been awesome. I'm glad we yeah. got and, and have you on the show. Um, any any last words that you wanna wanna say? The floor is yours. Go cards. <laughs> go cards. There we that's go. All I got for you. So Patrick, yeah. I definitely appreciate it. Um, and uh, I appreciate you letting me talk about our program here a little bit. What we're doing offensively. And uh, if anybody has any questions for me, uh, my email is on my Twitter profile. It's on the Louisville. I I would be happy to answer any questions uh, as long as they fit within the rules of compliance. Yeah, Love it. Bryce, appreciate it, man. Awesome. All right, Patrick, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, man.